Hello, my name is Cory, and welcome to a slightly delayed episode 3.7 of the Mongol Empire podcast, The Rise of Temujin. The reason for the delay was that I wasn't really happy with the first draft of this episode, and so decided to rewrite it. The upside is that there will be less of a wait for episode 3.8, which is still scheduled to come out at the end of the month. So, last time out, we saw Temujin exert the combined power of the Karayid and his own Mongols to subdue the Merkit, the Neyman, and a coalition of tribes and clans led by Jamuga, events which took us to the end of 1201. These victories included a decimation of the Taichigud clan, although it came at the cost of Temujin almost losing his life, and his longtime enemy, Targutai Kirotug, managed to elude capture. The year 1202 started in very much the same vein. Temujin sensed an opportunity to press home the advantage over the many broken clans in eastern Mongolia. Possibly in retribution for being a part of Jamuga's coalition, he first targeted the Anchi and Chagan Tatar clans. Remember, at this stage, any unity the Tatar tribe had previously enjoyed had disappeared and now the clans looked to forge advantageous alliances beyond their tribal group. An alliance within your tribe was valuable, as long as the tribe as a whole was doing well. In all other times, you turned to your nearest neighbour, or the next strongest power. Having suffered a number of heavy defeats in the last few years, the unified entity that had been the Tatar tribe was on the verge of collapse. The upcoming battle was significant for a number of reasons, it could see the end of the Tatar tribe as a political power, and this fight provides the first evidence we have for the codification of Mongol battlefield behaviour. Quote, If we overcome their soldiers, no one will stop to gather their spoils. When they're beaten and the fighting is over, then there'll be time for that. We'll divide their possessions equally among us. If we're forced to retreat by their charge, every man will ride back to the place where we started our attack. Any man who doesn't return to his place for a counterattack will be killed. End quote. Having seen how effective the professional armies of China could be, Temujin began to instill basic discipline and the tactical concepts that the Mongols would become famed for. By offering each soldier an equal share of the loot, he was ensuring that his army would be focused on the most important element of fighting, to defeat the enemy. Played out on a larger scale, this discipline would see the Mongols thrust deep into enemy territory to take out centres of government across Eurasia before consolidating their conquests. One other benefit of taking the loot out of the equation was that Temujin was guaranteeing the unity of his army, as everyone would be striving for the same result. From a strategic point of view, this approach totally makes sense. We've seen steppe clans and tribes repeatedly go to war with each other, with no clear outcome being obtained. Temujin was ensuring that this would no longer be the case. We saw after the battle against the coalition, he chased down the Taichigud and killed off as many as possible, hopefully eradicating the need to fight them again in the following years, and allowing the Mongol to focus on other targets. It's a simple idea, right? Well, apparently not. Some of Temujin's family members disagreed entirely with this approach. 
The battle against the Tartar clans took place at a location called 70 Felt Cloaks, and was a resounding victory for the Mongol army. However, Ultan, Kuchar, and Daratai decided mid-battle to disregard the Khan's orders and stopped fighting to start gathering the spoils. Having emphasised the value of discipline and the need to follow orders, Temujin had no choice but to punish them severely. So he did. But he didn't carry the punishment out himself. He sent Jebe and Kublai to confiscate everything they had taken from the battlefield and then ensure that the trio received nothing when it came to dividing up the spoils. This punishment had two effects. For the wider army, it showed that Temujin was not afraid to punish men who failed to follow his orders, no matter their status, reinforcing the importance of discipline. For the Borgigans, the meaning had further reaching consequences. Having the punishment carried out by two commoners gave Temujin's relations a clearly visible demonstration that the Khan's position was no longer reliant on their support. This was Temujin's tribe, and the men at the top were those who had proven their loyalty and ability to him. Being a blood relation was no longer an important factor for advancement. The choice for the senior Borjigans was clear. They could be loyal and obedient, or they were welcome to leave and take their chance in opposition. With Temujin's star clearly in the ascendancy, they were wary of open hostility towards him. Daratai seems to have decided to stay with Temujin, at least for the meanwhile. Ultan and Kucha opted for a third option, and took their people to join Ong Khan. One final note though about the fate of the Tartar tribe. As far as the secret history is concerned, this is the final act against the most hated tribe on the steppe, and to ensure that the victory was complete, Temujin set up a council to decide on its fate. Quote, since the old days, the Tartar have fought our fathers and grandfathers, now to get our revenge for all the defeats, to get satisfaction for the deaths of our grandfathers and fathers. We'll kill every Tartar man taller than the linchpin on the wheel of a cart. We'll kill them until they're destroyed as a tribe. The rest we'll make into slaves and disperse them among us. End quote. You'd have been hard-pressed to find a dissenting voice. But before this action could be carried out, the prisoners rebelled. The surviving Tartar chief had asked Belgutai for the council's decision, which he decided was a good thing to share. And unsurprisingly, the Tartar chief was none too happy with the outcome, so he organised the condemned and constructed a fort. Having successfully put down this insurrection, the Mongols started carrying out the executions, only to find that the Tartar tribesmen were carrying concealed weapons. In the end, the sentence was carried out, but Belgatai's carelessness had caused the unnecessary deaths of the Mongol people. He was punished by being excluded from future council meetings, and joined Uncle Daratai on naughty bench outside of Temujin's tent. So that was the Tartars done with, the first nation to succumb to Temujin's ambition. In the autumn, the Neyman leader Buyaruk Khan, brother of the previously defeated Tayang, had managed to put together another large coalition of tribes and clans against Temujin and Onkhan. Rashid al-Din states that the Mongol and Korea did battle with the Neyman, but is coy on the result. He states that the pair ended up going to the frontier zone, which would suggest either a bloody stalemate or more likely defeat. 
This isn't the first time that Temujin had gone to the area to recover the strength of his people. We have no more information about this battle, as the secret history is silent on it. Something that both sources do agree upon are the events that lead to the final breakup of the alliance between Temujin and Ongarn. As we've seen, the relationship between the pair was complicated. They had a publicly declared father-son bond, which stemmed from the Ander relationship shared between Togril and Yesugai, Temujin's father, something that appears to have been unusual in steppe society. As we previously explored, there is no indication that obligations of Ander transcended generations. In this case, it may have been the Kareid Khan's way of paying back the debt he owed Yesugai for restoring him to power on at least one occasion. Whilst the reality of this father-son relationship probably amounted to little more than political protection and vassalage for Temujin, it had given him the space to grow his reputation as a leader. Temujin's defeat to Jamuga in the 1180s was perhaps indicative of the weakening of Togril's power, with the Kareid Khan eventually being overthrown and chased into exile. He ended up being rescued and restored by his son, who was operating in the frontier zone. This, I would argue, led to the nature of their relationship changing. Whilst Temujin may have had genuine reverence and love for the Kareid Khan, after all, he was one of the few men in Temujin's life who hadn't tried to kill him straight away, the Khan who had actually returned from Sisea was a shadow of the man who had previously run the tribe, and Temujin's reputation was soaring. Already a Khan, he also had an army that was combat experienced and had defeated the Tartar. It seems likely that the alliance between the pair at this stage was one of political expediency, something that Temujin could use to further his own ambitions. There was clearly discontent on both men's part, Temujin from having to play the role of vassal again, despite being the stronger party. And even in weakness, Onkan was too unpredictable to fully control. Togrul clearly wasn't satisfied with the balance of power. His attempt to abandon Temujin and strike out on his own prior to the battle against the Neyman in 1199 shows that he wasn't happy with the relationship. Following this event though, the pair had once more reconciled and declared themselves father and son, and in the years to 1202 they had once more presented a united front. However, there must have been a concern in Temujin's mind that Togril was not young, and that the matter of succession had not been clarified. It was time to resolve it. The only real challenger to Temujin outright taking possession of the Korea tribe was Togril's natural son, Sengum, and Togril didn't seem to rate him that highly. Quote, Soon I'll be so old my body will go up into the mountains. When I am so old that my corpse is placed on the cliffs, who will rule over my people? My younger brothers are worthless men. My only son, Sengum, is like having no son at all. I'll adopt Temujin, making him Sengum's older brother. Then, with two sons, I'll be happy. End quote. Whilst I wouldn't be surprised if Togril had publicly professed this opinion, it's only found in the secret history, so I would treat it cautiously. Another one of those literary devices, this time being used to discredit Sengum. However, Temujin took this statement seriously and tried to bind the two families more closely. He proposed a marriage between Togril's daughter Shagur Beki and his eldest son Joki. In exchange, Sengum would marry one of Temujin's daughters, Kojin Beki. Sengum wasn't impressed with this offer, 
and responded in a way designed to deliberately infuriate the Mongol Khan. Quote, If one of our women would marry a Mongol, they'd make her sit at the servant's place and stare at the back of the tent. If one of their women would marry a Karayid, we'd have her sit at the lady's seat and face the door. End quote. On first glance, this sounds pretty inoffensive. So what pissed Temujin off so badly? Whilst Temujin may have been rocking the boat with his conquests and elevation of socially unimportant people, he was still operating within a society that largely viewed seniority as the most important way to define individual and clan relationships, and Sengum was a part of this school of thought. It seems likely that Temujin's position was tolerated because of his success, but it hadn't changed the way his family was viewed by the other steppe aristocrats. In their eyes, Temujin was an upstart, and his family were merely commoners who had forgotten their place. And this is how Sengum's statement becomes an insult. The Mongols were, now bear with me here, Aturgus Bol, common serfs who had no idea how to act or treat aristocracy, and he was no longer going to play along with the charade. It's difficult to tell whether this was a legitimate proposal to bind the two tribes together, or a way to drive a wedge between Togril and Sengum, but either way, it was almost certainly a calculated move on Temujin's part. The secret history spews outrage at the rejection. Quote, He thought he was too important. He hated us and wouldn't agree to the marriages. When Chinggis Khan heard what Sengum had answered him, in his heart, Chinggis knew. He had lost all his feelings of friendship for Onkan and Nilka Sengum. End quote. Rashid al-Din states that war between the pair was only averted by the intervention of Onkan. The break between Sengum and Temujin must have been particularly painful for the Karayid Khan, and he must have known that he would soon have to make a difficult decision. Who would he support, Sengum or Temujin? He managed to avoid making a choice for the whole of the winter of 1202, but in 1203 everyone's favourite troublemaker decided to reappear. Yes, Jamuga was back. We last saw him being chased off by Onkan after the coalition against the Karayid and Mongol Khans had collapsed. We don't know what became of that pursuit, but it seems likely that he took the Jadaran to a location on the frontier of the steppe, somewhere that provided shelter and protection, but where he could easily keep up with the politics going on. Wherever that may have been, Jamuga now returned to join another alliance of clans that was forming around Sengum. At this stage, the competition between Temujin and Jamuga starts to be portrayed in ideological terms. The clans around Jamuga and Sengum are typically described as representing the steppe aristocracy. They saw Temujin as an upstart who disrespected the natural order of the steppe by overlooking social markers such as seniority or lineage when handing out roles in his tribe. Now this was fine when said tribe was insignificant, but his tribe now included some quite important groups, and was growing in strength year by year. By continuing to promote any old person and not respecting the rules relating to background and heritage, Temujin presents an existential threat to the position and privilege of the current aristocracy. Unsurprisingly then, Temujin is often championed as being a man of the people, but it's clearly a far more complex situation. Rather than being a conscious decision to promote from the lower strata of society, I would argue that it was a result of his experiences growing up. The family members who perhaps should have helped him out left him and his mother, his brothers, to fend for themselves. 
They had only returned Temujin to make him Khan at a point when it looked like he could be manipulated to their own ends. When their own plans had failed and they'd been punished for disobeying Temujin's rules, they abandoned him again. Out of necessity then, the people who became Temujin's advisors and generals were men who had proven their loyalty or ability to him. They had been with him in the difficult times and shared the hardships. Most importantly, if they had ambition, it didn't clash with his own. Of all the traits a person could have, loyalty seems to have been the one most admired by Temujin. We see a good example of this after the defeat of the Taiji good. Two men from the clan had come to join Temujin, and as they were swearing loyalty, they mentioned how they had bound Targutai Kirotug with the thought of bringing him to the Mongol Khan. Temujin confirmed that their decision not to do so was correct, because he would have killed them for betraying their leader. The point to take away from this story is that if you were loyal to him and showed a bit of skill, then there was a good chance that you would find yourself placed in a position of importance. I feel fairly confident stating that if the members of the Borjigan family had genuinely submitted to Temujin and recognised the legitimacy of his position as head of the family, then they too may have obtained positions of importance. This was just an unthinkable choice. They were the aristocrats. At the end of the day, we do have two completely different mindsets at play here, but I don't think it was the overt class struggle sometimes depicted. The alliance against Temujin was led by Sengum, Jamuga, Altan and Kucha, and there is an assumption that Daratai was involved or joins them at a later date. Whilst the first coalition was a battle for control over the Mongol people, this one was an issue of family. The secret history reports that the alliance gathered on the wonderfully named Desert of Weariness to plot against Temujin, with Jamuga reprising the role of bogeyman to help fuel the conspiracy. Quote, and Temujin is sending messages back and forth to Tayang Khan of the Nayman. While his mouth is saying words like father and son, his actions speak otherwise. How can you trust such a man? If you don't stop him now, who will save you? If you attack Ander Temujin now, I'll pledge to attack him from the rear. End quote. I'm not sure that the leaders of this alliance really needed further convincing to go against Temujin, as they were fighting to maintain their rights and privileges, and ultimately control of their clans. To fail would probably mean death. So they all agreed that Temujin had to die, and Ultan and Kucha apparently went further, stating that they would be happy to dispose of all Mother Hogalun's children. They also agreed that one more person had to join the alliance, someone who might tip the balance in their favour. Sengum sent a messenger to his father, urging him to stop supporting Temujin, and the secret history does a pretty good job of dealing with the moral dilemma Ong Khan goes through. Quote, when Ong Khan heard what they'd said, he replied, How can you think of such things about my son Temujin? In our times of greatest trouble, he's been our support. Now, if we think badly of him, we're sure to lose heaven's protection. Jamuga doesn't know what he's talking about. How do you know he's telling the truth? End quote. But Sengum wasn't going to let this rest. After all, he had the most to lose by letting Temujin live. He sent a second messenger to Togril to try and persuade him, before going to the Khan himself. Quote, Even now when you're still alive, Temujin has no respect for you. So, my father the Khan, when you're so old you choke on white milk, so feeble you gag on black meat, will Temujin allow us to rule our own people? 
All these people your father, Kyriakus Khan, amassed. Who ruled the Kyriad people then? Onkan again replied. How can I betray my own son? How can we think evil of a man who supported us in our greatest troubles? If we do, we're sure to lose heaven's protection. Hearing this, Nilka Sengum grew so angry, he threw aside the door of the tent and stalked out. End quote. It is entirely understandable why Onkan would struggle to make a decision. On the one hand, he had his natural son, and apparently only heir left alive. A man he had publicly denounced as being a bit useless. On the other hand, there was the son of Isander, and now his own adopted son. A man who he had welcomed into his court and mentored. This was the man who had rescued Togarul on a number of occasions, and got him a royal title. A man who Onkan owed so much to. He clearly loved both men, but in the end, blood won out. Quote, and Onkan, afraid Sengum would hate him if he didn't agree, called him back, saying, If we do this, there's no way to know what heaven will do to us. How do you plan to kill my son Temujin? Do whatever you think you can do, but know what you're doing. So Sengum told Onkan what they had planned. He asked us to let his son marry our Chagurbeki. Now we'll say to him, come to our camp for the engagement feast. We'll set a day for the marriage and invite them to come. And when he arrives, we'll capture him. End quote. Onkan agreed to the plan, and the invite was sent to Temujin. Obviously delighted by Sengum's apparent change of attitude, the Mongol leader selected ten men to ride with him, and rode to Onkan's camp. They stopped overnight in a tent of Father Mungalig. Whilst they conversed, Father Mungalig asked Temujin to think about why Sengum would change his mind about the proposal, after he had initially poured scorn and insulted it. What was his motivation? Something didn't add up here. Agreeing with the reasoning, Temujin decided to send two men onto the Koraid camp, stating that because it was spring, the horses were in no condition to ride, and so, unfortunately, Temujin would be unable to complete the marriage proposals at this point. Apologies and all that. The conspirators did not believe this reasoning for a moment, and probably were aware of how close Temujin was. They decided that action was needed now, and planned to ride out and capture him the following morning. It seems that Temujin, the leader, had a charmed life. For once again, the plot was revealed to him. Ultan's younger brother had attended this meeting, and on returning to his tent, discussed the plan with his family. Two of his herdsmen overheard them talking, saw weapons being prepared, and made a snap decision to write a Temujin. Another example, perhaps, of his popularity among the common people. Now informed of the true intentions of his former allies, Temujin gathered his most trusted men, mounted his horses, and rode east until they reached the sands of, again, you'll have to bear with me, Kala Kaljid. Here they stopped to eat and rest, hoping to have lost the pursuers. However, it became quickly apparent that this was not the case, as the dust of Onkan's army was seen on the horizon. Temujin realised that they would have to make their stand at Kalakaljid, and so made their preparations to meet the enemy. As the two armies close on each other, the secret history uses dialogue between Onkan and Jamuga to set the scene. Asking who would be fighting with Temujin, Jamuga responds to the Koreid Khan by stating that the Urugud and Mangud clans were the most dangerous of Temujin's forces. To counter this threat, Onkan ordered the Jurgen, 
Tubigan and Don Cayed clans to lead the charge. They were to be supported by his personal guard. The rest of the Koreid alliance would follow behind his vanguard. Onkan then handed over control of the army to Jamuga. This seems like a slightly odd move. Why would he do this? I guess we could put it down to a general reluctance to fight Temujin. But it could also have been a statement. You wanted this, now deal with it. We also shouldn't forget that Jamuga had been elected Gurkhan back in 1201 which had seen him take on the role of field marshal to organise and field an army consisting of lots of independent units. Maybe Ong Khan no longer had the energy of the younger man. We also can't rule out that the build-up to the Battle of Kalakaljid Sands is another literary device used to absolve Ong Khan of the blame for attacking Temujin. It's worth noting that the secret history has Jamuga sending a message to Temujin revealing Ong Khan's strategy and stating that the morale of the Korean army is shot to pieces. In the same way that the secret history struggles to reconcile Jamuga being a most hated enemy, but also the Andra of Chinggis Khan, it is treading the tightrope of Ong Khan being both a betrayer, but also an honoured family member. So it's perhaps unsurprising that it struggles at times to portray both sides with balance. As the two sides faced up to each other, it was clear that the army of Jamuga, Singam and Onkan was the stronger. In his haste to escape, Temujin had only been able to scrape together a relatively small number of followers, along with the Mangud and Uragud clans, and this was a fight he could not, no, should not, try to escape from. As Onkan predicted, the Uragud and Mangud led the charge for Temujin, and were met by his Jurgen clan, who they managed to drive back. The Jurgen were replaced by the Tubigan clan, who managed to strike the Mangud leader off his horse. They were unable to press the advantage and were pushed back by the Urugud. And then the Urugud went Super Saiyan. First they defeated the Tubigan, then the Donkayid were beaten, and finally they pushed back Ong Khan's personal guard. The battlefield was a bloody chaotic mess, and the tide appeared to be turning against the Koreid. Seeing that Ong Khan's battle plan was falling to pieces, Sengum decided to lead a charge against Temujin. To be a Mongol warrior, you had to be pretty fearless. In addition to facing an enemy charging at you with armed with clubs, swords and a few lances, there was always the prospect of having to charge through a shower of arrows. As Sengum charged at Temujin's lines, the Urugud unleashed a volley of arrows at the Koreid. Mongol archers are renowned for their accuracy and power and one arrow hit Sengum in the cheek, knocking him clean off his horse. Abruptly, the Korean attack ended, as Sengum's men fell back to protect their injured leader. But this wasn't a victory for the Mongol Khan. The two sides had fought to a stalemate. The Battle of Kalakaljid Sands and its aftermath is described as the lowest point of Temujin's career for a reason. The fighting had been vicious and bloody, and both sides had taken heavy casualties. Kuladar, the Mangud leader, was severely wounded. Two of Temujin's heroes, Borogul and Bogochu, were both missing, and so was Temujin's son, Ogodai. In the next episode, we will jump straight back into the post-battle fallout, joining Temujin as he seals the Baljuna Covenant. As I stated at the beginning of this episode, 3.8 should be out as normal at the end of the month. In the meantime, if you are looking for more information about the events of this episode, 
Head over to mongolempirepodcast.com to find a list of the sources used in this and all previous episodes, along with family trees and a map of the five main tribes on the Mongolian steppe. If you want to give me any feedback, correct my pronunciation for example, point out any glaring errors, or just say hi, you can contact me by email, Cory. That's C-O-R-E-Y at mongolempirepodcast.com or I am on Twitter at mongolempirepod. Otherwise, until the next episode, take care and thanks for listening.